Welcome back to the Rock Your Retirement Show. I'm your host, Kathy Klein, and today's guest host is an expert on pain. Last week, Dr. Kukaro and I had an interesting discussion about me and my pain. If you didn't hear it, I was taken to the emergency room by ambulance because I could not get out of bed due to pain. Let me tell you a little bit about my guest host. Dr. Kevin Kukaro is a fellowship trained specialist and expert on the science of pain, actually trained in anesthesiology at the University of Chicago. After that, he completed his fellowship in pain medicine at the University of Michigan. Then he served as Associate Program Director of the Naval Medical Center, San Diego's Pain Medicine Fellowship Program. If you've never been to San Diego, you should go. It's a beautiful place. Dr. Kukaro's focuses on creating solutions for pain and pain-related topics important to healthcare systems, clinicians, and the public. We're so lucky to have him co-hosting today. Go to straightshothealth.com to learn more about him and his practice. During this four-part series, we'll be discussing the podcast episodes that Les and I created and, most importantly, what we left out. Last week, we discussed what happened to me and what I could have done to prevent feeling so much in pain. And today, we're going to talk about how well healthcare systems treat pain. Next week, we'll talk about pain myths and misconceptions. And finally, in the fourth of the series, we'll talk about why firefighters are better pain specialists than actual pain specialists. If you have pain or know someone who does, then you're going to want to stick around for all four parts of the series. But before we start, I wanted to tell you that this episode is brought to you by the Medicare Quick Step-by-Step Guide for Signing Up for Medicare. If you're signing up for Medicare for the first time, you already know how confusing it can be. The Step-by-Step Guide is absolutely free and will help you easily make the transition into Medicare. Head over there now at medicarequick.com slash checklist. Dr. Kukaro, thank you so much for co-hosting. I'm really thankful to have you back on the show again today. Well, thank you, Kathy. I really appreciate it. And I hope everybody got a lot out of that first episode. And as always, if they have questions or, or comments or are confused, just let us know and we'll try to answer those. That's right. So today we're going to talk about the healthcare system and how well it treats pain. You know, I can tell you from my experience, I've actually had chronic pain in my neck for years and years after several car accidents. What do you think about the the healthcare system, how they're treating it now and what we can be doing differently? So our, our healthcare system is really, really good at what we would call acute episodes. So if you're in a car accident or you're having an acute heart attack or you got cut open and you're bleeding all over the place and losing all your blood. We're, we're really good at treating that stuff. That's, that's, that's um, the whole system is, is designed around it. But what we are not good at is anything that has been around for a while, chronic conditions. We're not good at, pre- uh, at doing preventive care and getting you so that you never had the heart attack in the first place. We're not good at uh, when it comes from a pain standpoint, if you've had pain, for a long period of time, we're pretty atrocious at taking care of that. The numbers, I think, um, are a little shocking and a little scary 
but they're, I think they're important for people out in the community, particularly people in that retirement age. Because what's interesting to me is there was a study, this has been a little old now, probably mm -hmm. about early 2000 that this came out, but about 37% of Americans when that study came out believe that if you have the, the resources that the healthcare system can cure or treat anything. And that is simply not true. And it's specifically not true when it comes to pain and pain that has been persisted for, for months and months and months, if not years. Hmm. You know, just, just from talking with my friends, uh, that, that sounds about right. That there are a lot of people that think, you know, I, I have a friend that she has chronic pain and she had, gosh, what kind of surgery? She's had several back surgeries, but she had a back surgery. And then within about two or three weeks of her back surgery, she's taking a vacation where she's flying to another country. And all of us were appalled. And we're like, well, no wonder she has pain. She's not healing, you know? And I think it's because she thinks that it doesn't matter what she does, the doctors are going to fix her. You know, she can have surgery and then run, even though we all know that it takes time to recover from surgery, she's off flying to another country. So what do you think? I mean, is that part of it? Our mindset is just, it's the doctor's responsibility to fix us. Well, I think we've sort of trained that into people for a long period of time, uh, that if there's anything potentially wrong with you, uh, go see your doctor and then they're going to figure it out or they're going to tell you and they're going to do something to make it go away. Right. And that is, comes from health systems. It comes from public warnings. It certainly comes from the pharmaceutical industry because we know that there's only two countries in the world that have direct-to-consumer advertising. Which is, is shocking. Shocking. One's the United States. The other one's New Zealand. And what do those ads always tell you? Well, one, they, they diseaseify symptoms, which what I mean by that is we, as humans, we are not meant to be in one state all the time. We have good days. We have bad days. We have sad days. We have happy days. We have, you know, mad days. We have glad days. That, that's normal for us. Having a normal emotional spectrum and a normal sort of physiology that goes with it is okay. But the, the pharmaceutical industry likes to start taking these things that maybe, maybe you have one day that you were having difficulty because maybe you had to go into a, an, uh, a new environment and you were concerned about meeting new people and you felt your heart starting to race mm -hmm. and you started getting nervous and maybe your palms got all sweaty. Well, if you listen to pharma, we're going to call that social anxiety disorder rather than just being shy or normal because it's a scary new environment for you. And we're going to say, well, you need a drug for it. Do you want me to tell you my story about that? Sure. Okay, so when I was younger, I was a financial advisor. And before I became a bona fide financial advisor, I sold annuities to, you know, I, I sold 403Bs in hospitals. And when I first started, I would sit in the cafeteria. You're a doctor. Have you ever seen the annuity salespeople sitting in the cafeterias talking to employees? Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Okay. So that's what I did. And when I first started, I didn't know what it was. I had no idea. I just knew that I would be sitting in a hospital talking to a nurse and all of a sudden my heart would race and I felt like I was going to pass out. And this happened maybe 10 or 15 times. And each time I would say to the nurse, Ooh, I feel like I'm 
going to pass out. If I do pass out, please revive me. <laughs> and then I would just continue on with whatever I was doing. And then after a time, maybe it wasn't 10, maybe it was closer to 10 times than 15 times. But after a while, it stopped. And then I learned about uh, the symptoms of, uh, what, do you, what do you call that when you feel like you're going to die and your heart races? There's a word for panic, it. A panic attack? Yes. And, and when I read or heard about the symptoms of a panic attack, I said to my, that's what was, that was happening. I was having a panic attack. And then I read more that if you're having panic attacks and then you, you stress out because you're having the panic attack, they actually get worse. And I think that the reason why mine went away was because I just made a joke of it and went on. You know, I didn't say, gosh, take me to the, take me to the ER. I think I'm going to die. You know, I would just say, this is what's happening. And I would move on. But it's interesting to know that if had I known what it was, it might have made it worse. If I would have said, I'm having a panic attack, then I might have, it might have gotten worse and worse and worse to where I probably would have required medication. Well, and I would say the, the, the difference comes down is how that was framed, right? So you, you had this experience, it was distressful. Then you learned about it as a panic attack and, and however you learned it was in a neutral manner and you realized that it could be interrupted and it wasn't something that was going to kill you. And but I didn't well, learn about it until after they stopped. Until, okay, after they stopped. That's right. They stopped when I, I just always kind of laughed about it and blew it off and then they stopped. So that, and, and that, humor is extraordinarily powerful. That, that, and humor is, has, is powerful for anxiety, is powerful for pain, is powerful for depression, is powerful for healing. But I would say that if you had learned, like I think you were kind of leading onto this, if you had had that symptoms and then say at night you were watching TV and then we had an ad come on right. and explained your symptoms and then would have said, because those they're never like positive, oh my God, you're having a panic attack. Panic attacks are associated with with Death uh, and not making friends right. and, and heart attacks in the future and all this stuff. So you need our new drug. Well, lo and behold, not only are you now more scared of having a panic attack because now you're when you you experience a new one, you're going to be thinking about the drug ad, and they're like, "Oh my God!" They said, "I'm not going to be able to have friends, and I'm going to be a recluse in my house, and I'm going to have a heart attack in an early age." Right. So now you're adding on to the fear, and then much more likely that oh, go see your doctor and take the pill, which for that specific um, condition was basically a methamphetamine. No, so, nice. that's all I need. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, a lot of it is messaging, and and there is a problem when it comes to the U.S. healthcare system and the way that we sort of talk about our bodies. And we do this for many different reasons. There's the medical legal ones, and everybody's scared of getting sued. But we've basically made the body seem to be like this weak, pathetic thing that needs fixing. That, that needs fixing all the time. When the reality is the, the your body and your brain are the most remarkable self-healing machines that there are in this in this world, if not the universe. And that the vast majority of the time, what we need to do is be able to step out of the way and let us do its thing. Well, you know what so, I find interesting is that had I started taking medications back then for the panic attacks, I probably would still be having them. Yes. You know, I mean it they went away on their own because I laughed it off. Now, I'm not saying that if the listener's having panic attacks, you should like, laugh it off. I'm not saying that at all, because 
I lived through it and I literally thought I was going to die each time I had one. But I didn't know what it was. And I was focused, you know, I didn't, I was embarrassed about it. So I was just focused. And the only reason why I even mentioned it is in case I did fall over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I wanted to make sure that whoever was there was going to revive me. So that, that was it. But yeah, I think you're right. I think that having these drug commercials on television is probably making our country more sick, uh, not, not healthier. Well, it was interesting as we, we noticed as we introduced more and more of the pharmaceutical advertising as we do see more and more symptoms of disease out there. Um, and people become more hyper vigilant about symptoms and symptoms. Right. Yeah. And the, the thing that I find particularly disturbing is just like you said, we are not laughing off panic attacks. Panic attacks are awful. You feel like you're going to die. I had a moment in my, or a, a period in my life where I would wake up in the middle of the night experiencing panic attacks. They are horrendous. But the difference is, is if you diseaseify them and think that there's nothing that you can do about them, and then we, um, we shove off a drug, then not only are we kind of not learning skill sets that are not just specific to our anxiety attack, because the other interesting thing is about when you start learning some of these skills, and we kind of touched a little bit about learning self skills, like things that you can do for yourself, activate modalities, they're not specific to one thing. Like if you learn a technique like humor, either you've actually learned it or whether you implicitly just somehow fell into it and found a way to manage those panic attacks on your own using humor, what you have, I'd be shocked if you have not noticed that you can use humor for other distressful events in your life and that it becomes, it compounds itself. So it, maybe you're not having a panic attack, but maybe you're having a, Uh, a horrible, distressful day, there's a reason that laughter is a great medicine in those scenarios. Um, It's a natural stress reliever. Right. So so it's, you know, the, so again, we're, we're never laughing anything off and we're not ever neglecting anything. But the fact of the matter is, is our bodies are remarkably more resilient and they're uh, more capable than we give them credit for. And the other last part to remember is that all healing is internal. And I'm not saying that in any sort of woo-woo, you know, whatever fashion. What I'm basically saying is that it's your the ultimate the ultimate decision and how you get better is done by your brain and body. Everything that we do, even whether you're in a horrible car accident, you have just had a heart attack, you have um, some sort of awful disease process going down. And an ideal scenario, what the medical system can do is try to make it easier for your body to heal. But it requires your body to do the healing in order for you to get better. Right. That's true. Yeah. Because if there are people that have the same accident or the same symptom, some survive and maybe even thrive and others don't. Well, and, and, and it's generally not the pill or the procedure or anything else that's what quote unquote curing you. You know, if we take a simple example, just like a bacterial infection, when we actually have bacteria in our body and now we have a disease associated with bacteria, the vast majority of antibiotics, what they're trying to do is they're basically holding down that bacteria or taking away some of that bacteria, but you have to have a functioning immune system so that your body can ultimately wipe out the bacteria so that you can ultimately get better. It's your body that does your healing. The pill is just supposed to facilitate that. Right. And what we've sort of replaced over the last years is this idea that it's not me that's the healing. It's this other stuff that we're putting in. 
And the problem, yeah. as I see it, is these other stuff, they always have side effects. There's always something else that they cause. Yes, they have huge amounts of side effects. And then people start taking pills for the side effects of the side effects from the first pill. That's and right. And they start pills for the side effects of the side effects of the second pill. And now we have people that have 19, 20, 30, 40 medications that they're on. You know, the average adult uh, over the age of 55, the average adult is on five or more medications. It's just astounding to me because that's the average because there's a bunch of people who aren't on it, on any. And I personally know people who have been on 19, 20, 30, 40. I, the longest med page I think I've ever seen was about 60 something medications. Yeah. And when yeah. we're doing Medicare comparisons for drugs, it only goes up to 25. <laughs> you know? Well, and the, the scary thing is, is um, after you go beyond really two medications, nobody has a clue what the interactions are anymore because there's no studies on it. Oh, man. That's so, scary. It is. And I, I know we've gone off a little bit off topic here, but this is a long way to kind of basically say when you're looking at how our healthcare system treats chronic conditions, those are the things that have been lasting for months and months and months and years and years and years. It's uniformly awful. And when it comes to pain, it's atrocious. And what I mean by that is if you kind of look at the numbers, I like to remind, like I do a lot of work with, with other doctors. I teach doctors about pain and physical therapists and occupational therapists and do lots of talking and, and educational series with them. Um, and what I remind my colleagues is there are only four things that we can actually do to any individual that comes in. So if someone comes into your office and they say, doctor, you have to do something to me. You have to, you have to do something. What I like to remind the doctors, is there's only four things that you can do. One, you can either do lab work or imaging. We can look at them right? So we can get an MRI or we can get blood work or something. Mm -hmm. Poke them, which means we can stick a needle on them. We can cut them, which means we can do surgery or refer them to a colleague that does surgery, or we can drug them. So look, cut, poke, or drug. Right. And those are the only things that we can actually do to you, okay? I'm not talking about education. I'm not talking about, you know, uh, discussion or coaching or facilitation. What I'm basically saying is if you are looking for someone to do something and your doctor is going to do, has to do something, that's it. And you but, just have to decide, do I want to be, you know, on drugs? Do I want in a surgery? Do I want an injection? Or do I want some sort of lab work or imaging? And there's a lot of scenarios where none of those are appropriate. But the doctors don't get paid to educate us on biofeedback do they or on meditation or on laughter i mean do the doctors can the doctors bill your insurance for that well you can start looking at time-based billing it is in generally frowned upon because it's not a way to maximize revenue that <laughs> goes that goes beyond it if you look at our healthcare system uh, you really couldn't have designed a worse system for the treatment of what we would call chronic pain or chronic conditions in general and part of it does come through the reimbursement. So what is reimbursed? Procedures are reimbursed much better than spending time with your doctor. The way in, the, that's probably way beyond this particular episode. How that came to be. Well, we are but, talking you know. about our healthcare system and how it treats pain. <laughs> so it's no, all related. It, it is, but it, 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 there's, there's, you know, I don't want, if I talk too much about this stuff, people think, oh my God, Dr. Kikari, you're crazy. And, and it is because the truth is, is crazy how this actually occurred. The facts, the documentation, the research and the data that that demonstrates how these billing systems developed over time and why someone is paid more to spend 35 seconds to stick a needle in you than 35 minutes to try to teach you and educate you and learn all the facets around your health complaint. It's it's atrocious. It's scary. And uh, it goes to some very dark places in our healthcare system. But the, I guess the most important thing I want the listeners to understand is particularly for chronic pain. 
is the the idea that somehow the answer is going to come from the medical community is it is so far behind what the science shows and so far behind what the system is actually designed to do that it's it's just it's an almost an exercise in futility and it, it it's it makes me ashamed and sad to say it but just if waiting and hoping that the healthcare system is going to find some magic cure for chronic pain uh, is you're going to be sitting and waiting for a long period of time in pain while while waiting for that to happen and all of the things that we can do on our own, can we use those in addition to some of the things that doctors prescribe, such as, you know, pain medications and things like that? Or must we go cold turkey? I would say instead of thinking either or, it's always better to think and, right? In the, in the, and I would always return to, and I think we touched on this in the first episode, is figuring out the things that you can do the things that you have control over and the skills that you can develop to me is much more important than what anybody else can do to you. Um, but if you're going to use them, use them all. And so this is like, if you're having a surgery, I wouldn't say, well, you know, if someone's going to do a, a major surgery and maybe you're having some sort of, I don't know, abdominal complaint and they have to go in and they have to take out part of your colon because you have Crohn's disease. I would not say, Oh, well, you should never have any sort of analgesic medications postoperatively. But I would also say, don't only rely on analgesic medications. If you, I kind of understand how pain works and is constructed, and I think we've touched on that and we'll touch on it more later on. Um, there are things that you can do in addition to the pill or the injection that they're giving to you in that acute scenario. Now, hmm. for chronic conditions, it's a little bit more tricky because um, when we're looking at medications, and I'm, I'm talking about all medications, we can say neuropathic medications, we can say opioid medications, we can say a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, so I'm not just picking on opioids. The therapeutic, effect, therapeutic effects of those medications for chronic pain, um, there's a whole bunch more variables that are involved with it. And so they're less about just the pill per se as to other components. And so I am not nearly as supportive of relying as a first line or primary agent for chronic pain to be a drug or injection or something external to you rather than developing those skill sets that that we've mentioned uh, a couple times now. Huh, interesting. What do you think and I don't even know if this is possible. I I'm just thinking of it as we speak. What about hypnosis? I think hypnosis is it can be extraordinarily powerful. Um and it's not like you know, the hypnosis is not this thing where you get brainwashed or, or whatever, but what hypnosis does, in, in my understanding, I'm not a hypnotherapist per se, uh, but what it does is allow your body to relax and learn things quickly and to also be open to suggestions and to focus your attention on um, uh, on things specific to you. And so there's there's a lot of potential in hypnotherapy. Now, the root of all that, though, the root about of all these what we call non-pharmacologic therapies, so non-pill-based therapies, we can call non-interventional therapies, non-surgery or injection types of therapies, is that it, it, you need to kind of know what you're doing with them because you need to understand what it is that you're treating. And that comes into understanding pain because it is very, very different to say, oh, your pain is, uh, you're going to have pain for the rest of your life. Um, there's nothing that you can do about it. Go learn to meditate now because the only thing that you can do, manage it. <laughs> right. I yeah, mean, that, it, that doesn't sound too good. No, it, and, it's, and it's insulting, you know, to be honest. I, I think it's, it's, it's stupid. Um, I don't particularly like the word management anymore when it comes to pain. Uh, instead, I talk about pain mastery. And what I mean by that is if you understand pain 
And so we know that pain is about protection. We talked about in the first episode, not punishment. That pain, yes, has information coming up from the body. So there's nerve signals coming up from the body of the brain. But there's these two other major divisions that are as, as, as important as well. The attention or that cognitive aspect, the thoughts, the beliefs behind it. And then the emotion, which is the meaning, the mood, uh, and the memory associated with it. Now we can start honing in on these um, on these contributors that are involved in how this pain comes together in a more effective manner. Meaning, if you know, like anxiety. So anxiety to me is, um, it's what we call future-oriented. It's anticipatory. I kind of put it into that cognitive factor because there's a lot of thinking and foresight involved with it. And we know that anxiety worsens pain. And if you have somebody who's got a lot of anxiety and a lot of pain, and we say, you know what, as you feel, and ask me the questions, they're like, as I get more anxious, my pain starts to flare more and more. Well, then we would go, well, it makes more sense. If we know anxiety is a strong contributor to pain, let's send you to the behavioral health specialist or the psychologist or the, or the hypnotherapist. And they're going to teach you some non-pharmacologic methods that you can help manage your anxiety. And as your anxiety improves, your pain improves. And so what we've changed there is we've added some awareness of pain and the importance of these contributors are, and we've added intent to the therapy that we've had. So it's no longer your pain's all in your head, go see the psychologist and do deep breathing because your pain has these contributors. Your anxiety is a big, a big component of it. Let's learn these ways. Maybe deep breathing exercises can decrease your anxiety because that increases your parasympathetic nervous system. And as we increase that parasympathetic nervous system and your anxiety goes down, your pain should improve as well. Hmm. And that's a very different frame. And so there's a lot different intent. And when you're actually doing the activity, you're doing it in a different way than just saying, oh, this is never going to work. And I can't believe I'm doing this. And that doctor's crazy. Hmm. Interesting. So these, I want to call them therapies, but they're, they're not really therapies, um, can be used in conjunction with medications. But what you're saying is if it's chronic, the medications are less likely to work, obviously, because you've had a chronic and the medications haven't worked yet. Right. Well, that, that's an easy way to say it. If if you're still taking a bunch of pills or had lots of injections and lots of surgeries and you're lots of pain and you're still in lots of pain, really the, the question to ask is, well, why would you expect them to work better in the future? Right, exactly. What about things like acupuncture and chiropractic for managing pain? So acupuncture and chiropractic manipulation, and people talk about like traditional versus alternative therapies. And the way I look at these therapies is still whether they're active or passive, passive being done to you and active being things that you learn that you can do for yourself or you're working with someone to develop a skill set on. Right. Okay. I'm starting to get it. Okay. And so acupuncture and chiropractic manipulation are still what I would call passive modalities. Right. And so sure, they're not a spine fusion and sure they're not a, a, a pharmaceutical drug, but they're still passive and done to you. You don't control those treatments. And so I don't like to rely on those. And I would in in, um, in what you'll see on a health systems level is particularly with a lot of discussion about pain and and um, in in chronic pain and the opioid thing. I, I don't like to talk about opioids because it completely overshadows the conversation about pain. Uh, but there you'll see this shift where they're saying, well, we're not going to prescribe opioids, but we're going to give you we're going to able you can go get thirty visits of manipulation. Mm-hmm. Well, you're not seeing people get well. What you're seeing is we're shifting the care from a drug to manipulation and the expenses are still high. And ultimately the person isn't what I would call better, better being on less medications, not seeing a bunch of healthcare providers back to living their life, seeing their friends and family. Instead, we've just shifted kind of those, those, those passive based modalities. And so it's not that I'm anti 
chiropractic or I'm anti-acupuncturist. I'm, I'm anti-passive therapies for, for long-term conditions because you're ultimately not empowering the individual to get better and get back to living. You're entrapping the individual to that specific passive-based modality. Um, does, always does, has to go somewhere. And if you can learn how to do things yourself that can help, then it doesn't matter where you are. You don't have to run somewhere, you know, get dressed, get in your car, drive get the therapy and then drive home. You're saying that some of these things you can do yourself and then you're in, you're in control, more control. You, you have, you have more control. And the other part about when it comes to pain is the more, what we call perceived control, the more you feel that there are things that you can do to help yourself when it comes to pain, the less pain that you tend to experience. And part of that goes back to, again, if you understand pain as a protector, and as we increase threat, we increase pain. The more control you sense or perceive, the less threat you tend to see. And so it all kind of comes together. The other part about that, though, that I think is really important, and you kind of touched on it also, is, again, I'm not just talking like chronic pain. If you are out in the middle of the woods, like, okay, here, if you fall and trip out your door and you break your leg and have a horrible fracture, go to the hospital, obviously. Of course. And they can do whatever they need to do. But if you've learned these skill sets and now you're in the middle of nowhere and you fall and you break your leg as well, I am still not saying don't go to the hospital. But I am saying is if you're in the middle of nowhere, you have a long period of time before they can get there. Wouldn't it be nice to have skills that you can do in that moment in time to help you through that acute scenario while you're waiting for that medical care? And so, it's, again, it's not either or, it's and. And that, uh, and, and un, having a basic understanding of pain, having a basic understanding of, uh, of pain as a protector, having a basic understanding of these contributors that come together and recognizing that all these things that people will say, well, stress has nothing to do with my pain. Well, I'll tell you, I don't care what kind of pain that you're having, stress has an impact on it. And so these, these tools and strategies and techniques, having good awareness of pain and learning these skill sets, that isn't just, um, it's useful in a chronic condition. It's useful for an acute scenario. It's useful when you're in the doctor's office. It's useful when you're out hiking in the woods. It's useful when you're on vacation. So why would we not want to develop those skill sets? That makes so much sense. Is that what your course, whywehurt.com talks about? Or is that just uh, just the beginning and then that leads into another course? How does that work? Yeah, so why we hurt really provides a kind of the foundation on um, some basic pain science. It's introducing and goes into a little bit uh, deeper detail what we've been talking about. Um, we talk about what it means to understand pain as a protector. Uh, we talk about what it means to understand that that pain doesn't ooze like pain pus out of a body. And, you know, pain it doesn't ooze like pus from the body to the brain. Instead, pain is constructed by using information from the brain and the body and your environment in order to to make that experience. And then lastly. Uh, which we can talk to on that, that episode is is just being aware that once you start thinking of pain in multiple dimensions and not just one, then we can start actually treating it safely and effectively. Whether it's been there, you know, again, just now you stubbed your toe or whether you've had back pain for four years, there's things that can be done because now there are multiple different areas, different contributors that we can start identifying and targeting with awareness and intention behind that treatment. That sounds great. And currently that class is a free class. Is that correct? Yeah. Why we heard it is completely free. Um, the, the, the basics of, 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 of pain are so important for the individual. I, I, 
I have a hard, real hard time. It's like a public service. Like there's so much bad information out there about pain right now that um, anything that can be done to kind of to make people more aware that that uh, there is so much more than to pain than we typically understand uh, and that there's so much more potential for people to get better. That really is more of a public service than anything else. So that particular program is definitely, definitely free. Well, that's wonderful. So I really appreciate your coming on the show again today. And for the listener, head over to whywehurt.com. It's a free training course. And um, next week, what are we talking about? Let's see. It looks like we're talking about pain, myths, and misconceptions next week. I can't wait. Well, I can't wait to be here. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on the show again. And for the listener, we'll see you next time on The Rock your retirement show. Bye. Oh, wait, I wanted to thank you again for listening to the Rocky Retirement Show. If you're a new listener, a good place to start is episode 116. This explains the six pillars of retirement lifestyle and our general philosophy. Episodes 1 through 236 can be thought of as an encyclopedia. These are topics that may or may not be interesting to you. You can listen to the ones that you're interested in and forget the rest until the issue becomes an issue for you. And that's okay. I actually don't recommend starting with episode 1 and working through until the most recent. That's actually not how the show was designed. Of course, if you want to do that so you can see how the show changed over time, you're welcome to. Now, starting in August, actually August 31st of 2020, we changed the format of the show. The monthly episodes starting with 237 follow a real retiree from her pre-announcement through her first year of retirement. There might be bonus episodes, but we're committed to monthly. If you've enjoyed any of our past shows or the show that you've just listened to and you want to support us, you can do so in any of the four ways. One, share this episode with a friend or family member who needs to hear it. This is the most important way that people find us. Since our audience is typically older, we grow by having our listeners share our episodes with others. Two, subscribe to or follow the show using whatever podcast catcher you're listening on right now. Now, if you're listening on your computer, you can listen on your smartphone by going to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, iHeartRadio, Spotify. I mean, I believe on all of them. If you can't find us on the podcast catcher that you'd like to use, send us a note on the website at rockyourretirement.com and we'll make sure that we get on your favorite podcast app. But basically what you do is you download the app and then you search for the show and when you find it, you'll hit subscribe. Make sure it's the Rock Your Retirement Show and that you hear my voice when you listen. Um, actually, there were some episodes where Henry Shapiro 
was a guest. Uh, we, we actually downloaded some of his episodes. So if you hear him, it's probably still the, the same show. There were maybe 34 or 35 episodes back in the beginning that we hosted on our show uh, when he decided to leave podcasting. Number three, how you can support us is by leaving a review. Whatever podcast app you're listening to normally has the option of leaving a review, either a written review saying how great the show is or just with stars. Five stars is typically the best. And of course, we're shooting for those five-star reviews. And if you tell us why you like the show, what you liked about it, it's actually easier for other people to understand what the show's about. A lot of people, when they find our show, they think it's about money. And of course, by now, you know that it's not. Number four, if you'd like to support us financially, of course, we're always appreciative of that. Just go to rockyourretirement.com slash support, and it will take you to our page where you can support us financially. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on Rock Your Retirement. Bye.